Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Health Unchained podcast. Before getting into today's amazing episode, I want to share a quick update about myself since my last episode. I've recently joined the passionate team at Consensus Health to really focus on blockchain strategies in the healthcare space. For those that don't know, Consensus Health is a 2020 spinoff of Consensus AG, who's been a leading Ethereum software company since 2015. This is an incredible opportunity, and I'm really excited to be working with some of the most forward-thinking guests I've featured on this show. Check out the Consensus Health playlist. Check out my Consensus Health playlist on SoundCloud, or listen to episodes 10, 25, 43, 58, and 62 for conversations with my team members before I even joined the company. That said, I am still committed to providing Health Unchained listeners with an unbiased perspective of this evolving new industry landscape and a range of different guest speakers. As always, thanks for your support. One of the most important factors in building a successful blockchain solution is the participant governance model and community. I'm very excited to share this episode with the executive director of Hyperledger, Brian Bellendorf. Brian has spent decades of his career evangelizing the benefits and opportunities of open source software and fostering developer communities. Hyperledger was started in 2015 by the Linux Foundation and hosts some of the most popular enterprise-grade distributed ledger platforms like Hyperledger Fabric, Bezu, Indy, and Sawtooth. Hyperledger offers several tools and software frameworks for businesses and developers and has received contributions from IBM, Intel, and SAP Ariba, among many other organizations. It has grown to over 120 member companies today. Brian and I discuss some of the major challenges healthcare businesses face when implementing a decentralized ledger technology solution. So if your business is trying to make sense of blockchain, this episode is for you. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the Health Unchained podcast. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Brian Bellendorf, executive director of the Hyperledger project hosted by the Linux Foundation. He's written and spoken extensively on open source software development and communities. In 1999, he co-founded the Apache Software Foundation, a nonprofit that supports several open source projects around key internet technologies. Brian has served on the board of the Mozilla Foundation since 2003 and was Chief Technology Officer at the World Economic Forum. We'll be discussing hyperledger development for healthcare, open source communities, and public versus private blockchains, among many other topics. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ray. So just to give the audience a little bit more of a background of yourself, even though I shared a lot there, can you give like a timeline of your career and how you got into technology? (laughs) 
Uh, I grew up in a household that had some of the early like IBM PCs around and actually TRS-80 Model 3. So I was like writing basic programs in the second or third grade and but didn't think about computing as a career. My parents actually met at IBM. So my dad was a COBOL programmer, which made programming looking look about as exciting as accounting or because he was next to big machines and basements without much <laughs> fresh air or of a view. So I, I as I was getting going through high school, just used a computer to write book reports or whatever, but didn't really think about computer science, but went to Berkeley to study physics and got introduced to the internet. This was 1991. So just before the internet hit mainstream and discovered email, discovered FTP and then Gopher and just fell down a rabbit hole where it spent all night on IRC networks and learning about how these protocols were supposed to work from IETF mailing list archives and just standing there in awe at this public network that had been built and going, where did it come from? How did it work? Why did it work? And rather than work on my classes, I did some bare minimum there. Just started putting up information on FTP and gopher sites and eventually like some of the first websites around electronic music and uh, other topics that I was really into and was telling a friend of mine about this who had just started working at a, a new magazine called Wired. And so in addition to carrying a full class load, I started working at Wired Magazine as their uh, Unix Sherpa, as they <laughs> punned it. You can actually see in the colophon of the magazine, um, putting Wired Magazine online and that became Hotwired, which was the first ad supported website. And so I have the ignominious distinction of putting the first ad banner online and that's one of two things I've been apologizing for ever since. And then that became a career in, in internet, just starting a company called Organic Online that put up some of the first marketing websites for companies like Harley Davidson, Levi's, Nike, those types To And then starting a company called CollabNet, which is really where we tried to take this idea of how open source communities work and map that to the way that companies build software. And I like to say we were GitHub, but two or three generations too early. And so that was my kind of career up through the 90s. And then that's how I fell down the rabbit hole, a sequence of rabbit holes to, to end up where we were, where we yeah, are. While I was doing uh, some research on your background, there was a, I think the first website you created was hyperreal.org. And I thought it was interesting because it involved some of the discussions about rave culture in, in that era. So that thought was interesting. We could talk about that a little bit later, but I think I want to get into the technology at this point. So I want to learn first, how did you hear about blockchain technology? When? Yeah, I heard about Satoshi's paper when it uh, first came out in 2008. I was at the time working on the Obama campaign as a volunteer, so didn't really have a lot of time to spare to try to understand it more deeply. Saw some things that were intriguing. I was certainly intrigued by the idea of a payment system that could be detached from both nations as well as from banks and that sort of thing, be more self-sovereign and independent, kind of really inheriting some of the, the principles of around individual agency that I think have been hallmarks of internet technologies to that point. And I was skeptical of the cloud at the time. So in some ways, I saw this interest in decentralized systems as a, a hedge against what happened if we all converged to the point where the, you know, all of our computing was running on two or three different corporate clouds. Like we'd need something like Bitcoin to be a, a way to tease away from that. But you know, I didn't have the time to, to, to spare to, to set up a node and start minting. Probably could have done 100 Bitcoins on a laptop in a day or something like that at that point. But I kept tabs on it, but I was concerned and skeptical about it, partly from the argument around energy consumption as a means of decentralizing power. Uh, I just felt that was flawed in so many different ways. And I understand why people feel it's necessary, but it's still a big flaw in the, in, in, in the whole approach, in my point of view. I was also super worried about the way in which uh, cryptocurrencies could turn people who are 
programmers who are enthusiastic about the technologies they build into promoters of financial instruments and whether that would get them into legal trouble for one thing with the SEC and otherwise for the for promoting a technology platform, which is what all good open source developers do. They promote, they talk about what they build, they try to recruit other people to it. But the distance between that and shilling a coin is perhaps, there's a whole lot of gray area between that. And then just the second was it felt like we had invented a way with the internet to, to do what seemed like magic, which was created, be able to create the infinite copy machine, the infinite, a way to share IP, a way to share knowledge, a way to bring down barriers, bring down access to things. And in some ways, it almost felt like uh, blockchain technology was a counter to that as a way of introducing artificial scarcity. And so it was not aligned with that worldview in some ways. But as the, the 2008 you know, financial crisis showed, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical about the systems of the world. And so I respected it for that. I think I came back around to it in about 2013 when I was working at a VC firm. And not only were we seeing the early Bitcoin exchanges and other people building technologies coming and applying for funding, but started talking to folks who were talking about using it for traceable supply chains. And I was like, what? I, I don't get that. And let me try to help me understand more about this. And so just drilled into what a distributed ledger is, what the idea of uh, kind of a consensus mechanism is, uh, went deep down again, a rabbit hole of distributed computing, came out the other side going, okay, proof of work is one of many possible consensus mechanisms available. Smart contracts as a way to automate business processes between parties who normally don't trust each other and a way to build a reliable system and an auditable system out of parts composed of nothing but rational actors, people acting entirely out of their own self-interest, but arriving at something that's actually a system that, that could actually preserve certain rights and interests. That was fascinating to me. I felt like there was a lot of application of that because no matter what kind of government or what kind of public policy you think is right, corruption and fraud and um, misrepresentation and when people take shortcuts, those are all toxins to society, no matter how it's structured. And it really felt like blockchain technology could be a part of answering that. And I'll end this kind of intro with, as I was going down this rabbit hole, learning more, I saw this announcement by the Linux Foundation of this new project uh, called Hyperledger. It was a bunch of old school companies, IBM, JP Morgan, and others saying, oh, we're going to jump into this the, this pool with the new kids, but we're going to do it a different way. And at first I was skeptical of that, but I got to meet the people behind it, got to see, okay, they are interested in these other consensus mechanisms that make certain trade-offs. They're not as public facing perhaps as the, the cryptocurrencies ones are, but they can be applied to these more prosaic use cases and said, hey, how do I help this project out and talk to Jim Zemlin, my boss who heads the Linux Foundation. He said, we're looking for somebody to help this guy this. And so I said, sure, I'm not doing anything else and joined probably the only person to jump from a venture capital firm to a, to a nonprofit in aside for reasons of retirement in, in a whole long time. But there you go. That's great. No, thanks for sharing that. So I'm curious, what excites you most about the Hyperledger network and its community now? Yeah, I, I think what excites me is just seeing how many different applications it's being put to. And we have uh, a tremendous amount of activity on the supply chain side. There's no no magic to that, but it's um, in everything from diamonds to rice to intellectual property to all sorts of other food products and other supply chains, electronics, air, <laughs> aircraft parts. There's a lot of quiet deployments of this technology that where the participants aren't out to raise a token, they're not out to, to make a big PR splash. So in some cases, they're hesitant to even talk about it. But if you take any industry out there in the world, they they have a supply chain in them. This is not limited to containers of goods for bound for Walmart coming from China. This is every industry. And the prospect of reinventing that through this technology is really powerful. 
And I'd even connected to the sustainable development goals, right? These metrics that international organizations have agreed to try to measure progress against a universe of something like 250 different metrics out there, the education of women and to carbon emissions, to all these other sorts of, of things. And behind every one of those metrics, you can either get there by sampling and polling and, and self-reporting, which are all prone to wild degrees of mis mismeasurement, or you can try to instrument the systems of the world to be able to say this sneaker I'm buying, what is the carbon load of the sneaker? And tracing that all the way back to the origin. And blockchains don't give you that for free, but they're a key instrument in being able to, I think, get to reintroducing what today we consider externalities in economics back into the economic system, back make those part of, again, economically rational actors forced to account for the burden that they place upon the globe, upon uh, the rest of society. That's what excites me. And along the way, reinventing supply chains, reinventing how financial systems work, providing a new approach to distributed digital identity. This is such a generative technology that that this is what's kept me focused on this for five years and, and likely for quite a while longer. <laughs> yeah. And for the audience, I think one of the largest use cases right now with the Hyperledger Network is the food trust with Walmart in that project. Would you agree with that? That's one of the larger networks that we know of. Yeah, it's really hard to get metrics for this, right? Because there is no coin market cap for uh, permission blockchain networks. It's hard to get uh, hard numbers here. And it's they. we know that on that platform, they have something on the order of two or 300 different partners who are feeding data into that platform, verifying data from that platform. And so that's pretty interesting. But even the ones that have smaller numbers of members might have a lot more data and actually be better examples of decentralization. For example, in India, a few years ago, the Indian government passed a, a rule that applied to the telecom industry to fight spam, the spam text messages and spam calls by implementing essentially a decentralized do not spam list where anybody could register their preferences for do not send me marketing messages like this, like that. There are like four or five different categories. And so those spam, any spam preferences had to be tracked somewhere neutral. And the regulation actually required that blockchain technology be, that this distributed database be implemented using blockchain technology. So the seven or eight largest telcos in India got together and built out a distributed network using Hyperledger Fabric to track this, implemented it with nodes on each of their own kind of networks. And today it's tracking hundreds of millions of account holder spam preferences in the country of India. In some ways, that's even larger from a data set and from a utility point of view than what Food Trust, I think, is. Although Food Trust, I think, involves many more different companies. It's hard to get like a single metric of scale on, on, on these different efforts. That's interesting. Yeah, there are so many applications and different ways to think about this and go about these projects. Um, I'm very curious about the applications in healthcare, as you obviously know. And I think I'd like to discuss some of the projects you've seen in the healthcare space, leveraging Hyperledger and its entire stack or some of its stack. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. And a bit of an, of an update. So I, I continue to lead Hyperledger as executive director, but since December, I've taken on a broader role at the Linux Foundation as general manager for blockchain healthcare and identity initiatives at the LF. And that includes also now leading an effort called the Linux Foundation Public Health Initiative, which really focuses on in the fight against the pandemic and in preparation for future pandemics and other public health needs, the use of open source software writ large, not specifically blockchain technology, though it could play a role. 
And since December, we've been focusing on this question of proof vaccination status or test results as a means to cross borders and reopen society. And that project, that those efforts there have been building upon the self-sovereign identity concept that many people in the industry have been working together on, but which have been um, really built out using some key technologies from Hyperledger, two projects, one called Hyperledger Aries, another called Hyperledger Indie. Indie is kind of the ledger platform. Aries is the wallet software with a couple of different language implementations. And so now Linux Foundation Public Health is home to two software initiatives that are that are essentially combinations of issuer software, wallet software, and verifier software to do basically again, proof of stat health status types of applications for countries. One of those, Cardea, is actually deployed now in uh, uh, for the government of Aruba in partnership with CETA, which is one of these organizations like IATA and ICAO, one of the big standards and IT uh, consortia in the travel space. So that's really cool to see. And, and so the use of distributed ledgers for digital identity for healthcare use cases, I think is going to be very big, not just in this proof of action, vaccination status space as a way to decentralize the identities of issuers of those credentials. To be clear, we're not putting anybody's public health information or sorry, anybody's health information or any other personally identifiable information on a blockchain anywhere. This is used to track the keys of issuers so that you can verify if a signature on that credential is valid and do that in a way that makes it open and work, hopefully the way like email works. So I could show you a credential that showed I had a, a successful vaccination or something like that. And you can verify to know that's legit. So that's one application. And I think that opens the door to empowering patients and, and individuals to be able to take hold of other medical records and share those medical records with others, with their next doctor, and they change medical plans or a specialist or somebody else, and actually put the patient in as the pivot point for health information exchange, which I think would just be huge. There are plenty of other applications where using it, using a single source of truth, using a distributed ledger as a means to automate a lot of business processes and frankly, paperwork and bureaucratic processes that are inescapably essential in healthcare could provide a lot of benefits. So lots of folks have been using it for to optimize uh, drug trials in, in, in drug trials and pharmaceutical trials. There's a lot of work, paperwork done to obtain patient consent, not just for the initial trial, but for the analysis of that data and, and management of that data going forward. There it can cut costs tremendously in managing that to move that all digital and move it digital, not in a, a sign here with DocuSign kind of way, which is flimsy, but in actually using a, a distributed ledger to track who's granted consent and be able to then demonstrate that you've got all the appropriate consents to do the research you want to do. I guess one question I had is, since we're on the topic before on COVID and you're talking about how we'll be able to potentially have self-sovereign identities and able to travel and prove our vaccination records, does that mean the WHO's vaccine card are insufficient? And I know that I think you have some insight and history on that. I just think that audience would be interested in listening to <laughs> So the WHO, so the WHO has history going back before World War II in the fight against yellow fever and, and typhoid in the use of what most listeners probably remember as the yellow card that they would actually use if they were, if they'd gotten their TB shots or their other types of shots for travel. Before the pandemic, this has been a pretty well-established type of card. And an interesting thing about that card is that the original kind of uh, use for it was, one of the interesting things is it did not require you originally to fill out the name name and uh, birth date on that card before you could get 
the stamp on it that showed you had received a certain vaccination. The, the health authorities at the time recognized that people were so concerned about being databased, being having their, their about having their privacy taken away when it came to, to health status, that they were comfortable with the idea that people weren't going to just go and sell these widely. This was before photocopiers, before the internet. So the physics might've been different, but interestingly enough, that interesting that these cards could actually be somewhat anonymous cards because they wanted to make sure no one felt like they couldn't go and get a vaccination without you know being entered into some database somewhere. So, uh, I, and today when you travel and you present that card, it's obviously tied to your to 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 you as you use your passport and you cross a border. But that idea of privacy around your health records, even in an international context, is still pretty important. The WHO uh, has been conducting a process to try to understand the landscape. They convened an expert group to look at what standards should they use. The uh, There is, uh, I think, a window of time where they were exploring self-sovereign identity as the basis for the public key infrastructure around those signatures. I think instead they've decided to default to a top-down ICAO kind of style public key, I'm sorry, public key directory, more like an X509 style, which is a little unfortunate, but it's understandable if you think about that card those cards applying strictly in a travel context where I, privacy is perhaps not your first priority, right? You know, you're always, you're not going to be anonymous crossing a border. And they specifically ruled themselves out of using that card in the context of more local kinds of uses, going to a restaurant, going to a, a concert where, you know, the access might be limited. And I think an interesting con context that's emerging here in the, or a consensus that's emerging mm -hmm. in an effort that we're participating in as Linux Foundation Public Health called the Good Health Pass Collaborative, and that's a collaboration between ID2020, Linux Foundation Public Health, the Trust Over IP Foundation, but also over 100 different organizations that have signed on to this effort to work on common interoperability standards for what is a high bar for how these kinds of passes should work. And what's cl a clear consensus coming out of this is that there's a difference between the digital version of your yellow card or of the CDC white card that you get a, when you get a vaccination as, and that, that is health data. That's something that is essentially a health record. You want that to be signed. You want that to have some cryptographic standing when you present that to another health professional, another covered entity, you want them to be able to accept, okay, this is a legitimate record. You really did receive this vaccine. It probably wasn't forged, but that is a different kind of thing than what you want to be able to show to a somebody taking your ticket at an airline gate or somebody letting you into uh, a baseball stadium or a concert uh, where you have a much greater expectation of privacy, particularly in those latter categories. Like the context I try to use, like an example I try to use is when you um, go to a, a baseball game, you don't expect to give the baseball stadium not only the full name of you and everybody in your party. Imagine going with your family with some kids you're not expected to give them your full name. Maybe they have your name because you bought the tickets, but certainly is it reasonable for the ball field to have the full name and the birth date of everybody who attended and a whole bunch of extra health information about them? No, all they should have is a green checkbox that says, you know, if you're over the age of, I guess it's 12 now, soon it'll be, you know, even younger, you've received your vaccinations or a clear test result. Great. Uh, come on in. Perhaps they shouldn't even know if it was a vaccination or a, a clear test result. And so these privacy minimized kinds of scenarios are really essential to the people working on the standards in this domain. How do we make avoid the mistake we made when the cookie header was added to HTTP 25 years ago? That's the second thing I've been apologizing for since that time for the rest of my life was whatever midwife role I might've played in the birth of that header, where we thought here was a technology that was super simple, was just going to be used to try to store a little bit of information 
information on the in the browser so that the next time you came and visited the site, if you had told me you prefer dark mode, okay, I'll give you dark mode. I don't have to store a big database with dark mode settings for you as the user. I stored it on your browser and your browser just tells me when you come out over. It was intended to provide simple things like that. And somebody realized, oh, I could put a serial number in that cookie. And now I've tagged that person. I'll always be able to remember who that person is next time they visit my site. Oh, and look, I can also do that in a third party cookie way with a small one by one GIF. And now everybody can, can, now I can track where that person goes across all these different sites as they all collude to figure out where you, Ray, go across the web. That was beyond our conception that was going to happen until a, a few years later, or even you know sooner than that. But it was still like this cat got out of the bag before he really thought through the privacy implications of it. And there's a whole lot of people who are really determined not to repeat that mistake. If these kinds of credentials will be used in a very widespread way. Back to your original question, I think the WHO's mandate in this space was figure out what a digital version of that yellow card of that white card might actually look like that would help this top tier of use cases, which is fine. And I think transforming that signed clinical data into health passes that can be privacy preserving to different degrees is the most important set of work to do next. And that's something we're, we've got underway at the Linux Foundation. To ask you like a broader question about this, how close are we to a global self-sovereign identity solution? To global. Today, you know, the self-sovereign identity and the way it's deployed in different scenarios in the government of British Columbia that uses it, the, the credit, something called Credit Ledger done by the Union of Credit Bureaus out there, the project in Kiva that Kiva does in Sierra Leone around credit unions. And these are all interoperable systems. These are systems where they start out with kind of use case specific wallets. But I think over time, what we will see is the emergence of a standard wallet app that holds these credentials that for lots of different purposes inside of uh, a single application managed by the user, much the same way that you have a mail client, right? Your email client, you can have actually a couple different servers behind that one mail client for email from your Gmail account, from your work account, from maybe a personal account you keep out to the side for some other reason. All of that comes together in one user interface. And you don't have to wor wonder or worry about what network somebody is on to be able to email them, right? You get these credentials you get these emails, you hold them, you can send them, you can forward them on all of that interoperability, we all take for granted. And that's the kind of interoperability we need with these digital proofs of vaccination and these health passes. We need to be able to hold them in a wallet and be able to show them in whatever context and, and have them have the, their, their, the integrity of those wallets be verified. So all of the plumbing is coming together for that. It's been deployed in many scenarios now. And I think there were a bunch of extra privacy considerations that were raised by the use case of vaccination credentials, particularly around that last mile of making sure I can prove to you that I'm a, I've got a clear vaccination, but you can't use that data to build a profile of me and collude with a bunch of other places. That last little bit is required a little bit of extra engineering, something called BBS plus signatures. And we can go down that path if you want. But the plumbing is there. The conceptual model is there. There really isn't a regulatory barrier to this. In many cases, it's governments deploying this technology directly because they're enthusiastic about its ability to meet up with where they want to be on this front. But this mantra of it's got to work like email, it sound, might sound like bizarre. It might, sound, it might sound bizarre because so many of us perhaps loathe our email inboxes and the way that it rules our day. But it's still, I think, the best example we have of a two-way communication pattern that is interoperable between so many different contexts. Oh, that's interesting. Some say that if the government's rolling out these decentralized or self-sovereign identities, or I guess digital identities, isn't there a risk of government surveillance? So 
how can we be sure that our data and privacy is really secure? So the first layer of privacy protection in these, first of all, let me start. There's really this model of with self-sovereign identity of you as the end user holding in a wallet these signed documents that basically attest to very various attributes about you. And that collectively uh, defines your identity. I, I, now, that's very different from the traditional model of the your Facebook account or your account through an EHR portal of some sort, having all the data at the remote end of a name and password. Instead, this is about you and your ability to manage it locally. Of course, that data is back up. Of course, that data is shared with your other devices through the same way your contacts might be shared across your devices and your desktop, but it's your choice as to, to where and how that backup happens. And the cool thing here is that the issuer and the verifier don't have to be directly connected to each other in order for the verifier to be able to validate the integrity of that credential. There's no callback. There's no, no way that the issuer knows where you've used that. In fact, these credentials can still be valid even if the issuer disappears. If the issuer was a healthcare clinic that said, Brian's been vaccinated by us, uh, here's our signature, and that clinic goes out of business, thanks partly to blockchain technology, the, the public keys for that issuer are still a matter of public record. And somebody, a relying party, a verifier, can validate that signature as being valid even if that the website for that clinic is long gone because the clinic itself is long gone. So that's pretty cool. That's the first layer of privacy protection in this system. System. That's and then immutability. Yeah. It's not so much immutability as the, the fact that through the distributed ledger, we get for free this uh, uh, massively parallel system, this massively parallel database where the database that the verifier consults, it doesn't, the records of that are completely distant from the, and the node that it consults, completely distant from the node being used by the issuer that issues that credential. So there's nobody to tie these pieces together. And that's really cool. And then the second layer of this is something that we call selective disclosure, which is in, in, in the self-sovereign identity field, especially in this uh, direction around verifiable credentials, and there's an implementation of what are called zero-knowledge proofs as a way to be able to say, look, I've got, let's say I've got a credential in the form of a driver's license, and that driver's license has a whole lot of data in it, my name, my home address, my weight, my eye color. If I show you this because I want to go to a bar, right, and you're the bouncer at a bar, and I'm sharing this with you digitally, you get all this information. You can hold it in your phone as the bar, and that's a lot of more information than you need. All you really need to know is whether I'm over the age of 21 or not. You don't even need to know my birthday. You might... If you know my birth year, that might be enough, but you might just want to be able to determine I'm over the age of 21 and this is a valid signature. Okay, let me in. So selective disclosure is the ability to take uh, a really rich credential, like a driver's license, and only expose certain fields from that, only expose the year of my birth, for example, or if I'm just, uh, just turned 21, the year of my birth and maybe the month or maybe the day, but not having to share all the rest of that information and having the signature still check out. So that's a key difference in this technology versus other identity technologies. And then finally, anti-correlation. One of the other techniques in this system now is the ability to say, if I show this pass, this proof that I've received a vaccination to a, a ball field, because I go to a game and then later that night I go to a movie because it's quite the weekend. The movie theater and the ball field, even if they work together, they cannot piece together that it's the same person who went to both. And this is really important. I remember I mentioned the third-party cookie 
tracking problem on the web where somebody figured out how to use cookies to build a whole profile of the path that I've taken. That was because we didn't design cookies very well. We allowed for that same token to be show up across these different sites. So we're with, through BBS plus signatures and through better proofing through Didcom, which is the, the protocol behind a lot of this technology, we're able to present a, essentially a different QR code per context and have that still be validated and still verifiable that it's a valid signature and it's connected to me. And that's that is a way I think that we'll hopefully build some confidence in the use of these technologies for vaccine credentials and pr proof of test results for even these use cases like going to a restaurant, going to a movie. Thanks, Brian. That was really helpful and educational, I think. And it's really important to think about decentralized identity because it's not only going to impact the <laughs> industry, but overall it's going to impact everything because I know our identity is required for doing most things or proving our identity. So I had a question regarding Hyperledger and how developers are incentivized to work on it. So does, is there a lack of, since there's a lack of a native cryptocurrency for mm -hmm. Hyperledger, does that mean there's a lack of incentive for developers to work on that network or platform compared to other decentralized ledger technologies like Ethereum, EOS well, or something? What was the incentive before cryptocurrencies came around for people to work on open source projects? There was, there was tremendous incentive to, to go and solve real problems, right? Um, now they might be boring problems from the perspective of somebody who's immersed in the field of cryptocurrencies, but there were supply chains before blockchain. There were financial markets before that. There are a lot of prosaic needs for distributed databases, distributed systems of record and automation of inter cross-party business processes through smart contracts and those organizations that have that need and are you know using this technology to cut costs to cut risk to be more compliant with regulations or make it easier to audit and be compliant there are direct you know reasons for those organizations to use the software and if anybody anytime somebody's using software there's an incentive to fix a bug to add a feature and collaborate upon them it does in all honesty make it tough in this industry to, to attract a talent when there are rewards for that same kind of talent, especially around distributed systems and cryptography and the like, going to, to so much of the ICO funded types of operations. And and I should also be clear, there's not a, a hard and fast, no crypto kind of rule at, at Hyperledger either. There are projects that we have, uh, perhaps the leading one is Hyperledger Bezu, which is actually a full mainnet Ethereum client where the motivations for working on that would be the same as working on Geth or other implementations of the Ethereum client. In fact, it's, I don't, it's not the number one client. I think that's still Geth, but I, it's somewhere in the top two or three clients out there on the Ethereum uh, mainnet is Hyperledger Bezu. And it's also, but it also can be used for or permission blockchain projects. So there's still plenty of need and interest and in companies building the building out of that platform. You don't really need to, to pay people in cryptocurrency uh, to be able to get them to work together on the project. And that's true for other other open source projects to this date, right? Yeah, no, totally. And I think one of the other things I was thinking about was the fact that Hyperledger doesn't require, you know, it can scale a little bit more quickly than Ethereum at this point in time. If you want to build out a high transaction kind of, system, you can do that a little bit more easily on Hyperledger. Well, I, wanna, I, I do want to just, there. and I do want to be clear on that. The, so first off, there's a number of different Hyperledger frameworks, right? There's Hyperledger Bezu, as I mentioned, there's Hyperledger Fabric, which is the first project that we started with, shortly followed by Hyperledger Sawtooth, which has been more of an R&D platform and has some users out there. In fact, Panini, who are one of the big NFT marketplaces in the sports field, built a NFT marketplace on top of Hyperledger Sawtooth that they've presented about, and it's pretty cool. And uh, Hyperledger Iroha, which is used as the basis for the 
Cambodian central bank digital currency, which I think is pretty cool. And it is true that permissioned blockchains have a shortcut to be able to get to higher transactions per second. And, and that is when you have fewer nodes on the system, but the whole balancing triangle of what is it, completeness, security, and performance, you can optimize much more towards the performance and completeness side, I, I, because it's an easier task than trying to you know, bring an entire global network to consensus on what the next transaction is. So we have seen in the thousands of transactions per second on Fabric, I don't have recent stats on Bezu, and that's just because it's the nature of the kind of app that can run differently. But we see even in uh, permission blockchain networks approaches taken where whether it's through sharding or uh, subnetting private channels and fabrics case, or those sorts of things, performance management is pretty important. And thinking about the architecture of how you solve any problem is just as important and just as different in this space as it was in the early days of relational databases. We're learning how to design your relational database, which columns to index and optimize for, which kind of queries to optimize for, was pretty serious business and took a fair degree of understanding how the underlying architectures work. And these days, frankly, it's, it does sound weird, but I know most people who are building these apps are trying to ask themselves, how do we have to write to the ledger less? So how do we, because you know, reads are free. Anybody you know, has a full copy of the ledger, read the reads from a node, don't create any burden upon the network, but it writes are what are always constrained. And in fact, the more nodes you have, the, the more global your network, the larger the latency between nodes, the slower your transactions per second will get. That's just physics. That's the speed of light <laughs> entering into these things. And there's continues to be great research work going on consensus mechanisms to, to try to optimize that, but there'll always be that limit. And so a lot of research is going into what's the least that we can write, the least that we can do on Ledger to get away with it, to provide the trustlessness and the guarantees and the auditability that we need while still being able to get handle the volumes we need to see. And that really is the set of trade-offs. And it's a pushback against folks who think performance is the only only variable that that matters in system design. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Big news for Microsoft, who has decided to terminate its Azure-based blockchain as a service platform. According to a recent blog post, Microsoft announced they have been quietly informing customers on the best way to migrate their data to an alternative of their choosing by September 10th. Support for new deployments or member creations has also been discontinued. No official reason for their decision has been shared by the company. In late January 2016, Microsoft offered Azure's Dev Test Labs so that blockchain-related services and partners can decouple the blockchain technology from virtual machines. Microsoft's short-term goal for Azure's blockchain as a service was to make available a certified blockchain marketplace. The recommended migration destination is Consensus Quorum blockchain service. Users also could opt to self-manage their blockchains using virtual machines. It's interesting to watch how blockchain enterprises are starting to consolidate their offerings. It also speaks to how challenging it can be to launch successful tools in this quickly evolving space. And now, let's get back to our conversation with Brian Bellendorf, Executive Director of Hyperledger. Yeah, and I think one of the you know, challenges or conversation points that organizations have now, enterprise organizations specifically, is what is the right level of openness for their business application? So when they are looking to figure that out, what would be some of the guiding practices or exercises they should take upon themselves to do? 
The right level of openness. So one, one thing I should probably mention is in some ways the debate about, and many of the debates in blockchain technology feel so familiar to those of us who were around in the early days of open source software, where I hear echoes of the same cries we made around Microsoft should open source the Windows operating system because look at Linux and everyone would scoff at Linux and then Linux ended up being everywhere. Or, or the Oracle should open source its, its core database because look at MySQL. Again, Oracle bought MySQL. And these days, Microsoft has become arguably the largest open source company. They bought GitHub, they bought, they've uh, you know been very serious about open sourcing everything and making a commitment themselves to Linux. And there are hints of that tension between closed proprietary, it being the traditional model of building value in, in all forms of IP, right? Or all forms of business versus the network effect and the transparency and frankly, the auditability that you get from conducting business in the open. So that tension I feel in the blockchain space, partly in the tension between permissioned and uh, public blockchains, but only by virtue of the fact that so many of the permissioned blockchains are also private. There are public permission blockchains, things like the Sovereign Foundations Network, which runs off of Indy. The ledger is public. The ledger is available. And that's because there's no sensitive information in that ledger. It's all anchors by issuers on the Sovereign Foundations Network. All that kind of thing. I think what we can do is talk about what's an appropriate blockchain design that really maximizes the potential for network effects and the potential for a system to solve the, the problems that you set this up to, to address. And we're taking, first off, we don't tell people how to deploy their networks. Here's this raw software, go and build your networks the way that you like. But one thing we've seen is that uh, there's been a limitation, I think, in some of the traditional enterprise-centric models of building permission blockchains that have kept many of these networks from growing to become the, the reference network in their industry. And that's often when a network is so strongly associated with one company, whether they're a, a vendor or the 800-pound gorilla in a market, that competitors say, well, I'm not going to join their network, or I'm not going to integrate to their network. And, and then you don't really get the ability to be the network for that market. So we at the Linux Foundation, have been entertaining the notion and actually putting together some projects in this space to provide blockchain governance as a service, basically around permission blockchains. The idea is you form, you pick a use case, you pick an industry, you pick a, a domain, you find partners who have been in the standard space in that domain or built shared systems in that space, shared IT systems, and which are really ripe for some degree of distributed ledger approach to, to fit in. Maybe they've already got a pilot that they're ready to expand. And then have the Linux Foundation, just as we play the essential facilitator role in projects like Hyperledger or Linux Foundation Public Health, but we don't write the code. We are the neutral home for this stuff. We manage the governance around it. We help keep everyone clear on this side of antitrust law. We, we help promote what's going on in the community, but we don't charge a fee for access to the code or, or anything like that. Similar to that, running these blockchain networks in such a way as they are, they might start out pri private, but eventually the presumption should be that they'll be public networks. Even if they're permissioned, the ability to be able to run a node on that network to permission in and run a node should be objective. It should be transparent. It should be based on whether it's transaction fees or some other kind of gating function that is objective. And then, and then you build these networks up over time through all the code being public and all of the underlying infrastructure being public so that they can grow quickly and get there for being able to tap into the same kind of network effect that public blockchain networks do. So we've launched one now, a project called OpenIDL in the insurance industry space, 
This is uh, a project we're doing with the American Association of Investment uh, of Insurance Services, AAIS, who for two years have been running this open IDL project as a, and it's focused on regulatory reporting in the property and casualty space in the insurance industry, where there's a whole lot of information sharing going on between carriers and regulators, and a lot of analytics being performed across those to try to understand how is the world different after a major firestorm, uh, firestorm happens on the West Coast or a major hurricane hits the Southeast or after COVID. And that understanding of risk and costs and things like that involves sharing a lot of data in an auto automatable and auditable way. This is something that's ripe for blockchain technology. So we've launched this project now. We've got involvement from a couple of major carriers. We're trying to be real modest about how it grows. And we see the, the Linux Foundation's role in that as being this kind of minimum viable governance, this essential facilitator role at the heart of these kinds of projects. And so that's a long-winded way of getting to the answer, which is I think ultimately these networks work best when the underlying infrastructure they run on is as public-facing and transparent and, and, and operational as open source software itself is. There are some still essential rules that govern the need when you're tying this to regulatory requirements or to other legal constraints that say you might need a legal requirement to put a node on that network and participate in consensus and write transactions that network. Once you buy into that, then you realize that there's a lot of value to the auditability uh, and safety that can come from the use of blockchain systems to, to meet, some of these, meet some of these needs. And that can be done in a much more open way than I think historically the enterprise blockchain space has done. That is interesting. And talking about governance, so how important is getting the community and stakeholder to agree on the governance upfront versus having it more of a dynamic moving target in the beginning of the project? So I, I, I think there's a lot of really cool experiments out there around voting as a path to governance and even the use of things like quadratic voting to try to limit the influence of one dollar, one vote or one one ETH token, one vote in certain types of sophisticated blockchain governance operations. And I think there is a lot in the governance systems that can, can be automated through smart contract tracks and through the machinery of blockchain technology. But most good governance in the world doesn't happen through strictly democratic means through a 51% poll that goes one way or the other. Most good governance in the world is conversational, is consensus driven, is driven by humans listening to each other and trying to understand what's the best thing to build that will to result in the greatest amount of wealth for everybody. This is where I partly uh, depart from the traditional assumption in the blockchain space that people can only be reduced to, to economically rational actors who will be whose greed can be depended upon. And therefore, you should design design systems entirely based upon greed that end up being rational and fair in their outcomes, even if all the actors are greedy in, with, within them. I think it's that's a very dark view of humanity and a very cynical take, not wholly incorrect. So you have to give some props to it, but but not the way that I think leads to the kinds of societies uh, society we want to build. So in our model, the blockchain governance for these projects comes very much through transparency, like all the software that's running underneath it. That should be open source. That should be collaboratively built, not just thrown up on a GitHub website with an MIT license. And hey, if anyone wants to read it, have fun, where it's only like three core people who ever built it and they're all closed about how they work. No, instead, 
like the, the referential integrity of that code should come from many different eyes, many different hands, lots of rivalries between them, but all collectively agreeing, let's build this common uh, bonfire together. And that's and do that in the public as a way to, to make sure that everybody has an equal chance to be able to throw stones at this, but also to deploy this on their behalf. That's one level. And then a second level, which is around the legal conditions to be a part of a network. That's something that I think is still best by pulling together a convening of the participants in any market, making sure you've got pathways for new entrants to be able to come in, which I think the antitrust laws in the United States, actually, if they get exercised more, that'd be great. But I think as a baseline set, a really good common understanding of you can't set these things up as cabals that keep out disruptors, that keep out new market entrants. You have to have an open door to them. And I think if you do that, and I would expect the antitrust regulators to have an eye on this kind of field down, down the road, then I think that leads you to a, a governance system that is still pretty, still pretty much has the humans at the core, but for all sorts of operational benefits, automates as much of the mechanics of governance as possible. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. It's, it's such a hard topic for many organizations because it wasn't something they had to really do. Like ecosystem governance was not really a topic. 10, 20 years ago, or not as much of a topic as it is now, I would say. Would you agree? I think we got it, took it for granted. I think I, I, governance and, and politics, every, everyone loves to say use the word politics as if it's a pejorative word, as if it's like death and taxes and politics. But politics is dealing with other people. Politics is building society, in, engaging in any act of managing a neighborhood HOA is politics, right? Managing, if you have kids and they're in school and you're part of a parents association, that's, there's politics there too. There's politics everywhere and, and it's rational to rage at politics from time to time and rage at the madness of crowds as much as there's goodness that can come from the wisdom of crowds. There's frustration that can come from the madness of crowds as well. If we assume the worst of intent among other parties, we'll build, we'll never get back to building something greater than the sum of its parts. We'll never get back to uh, get to a society that that up uplifts rather than simply ends up in a Hobbesian fight for resources. So that's a path I want out. And I think there have been default politics in everything technologists have built for the last 50 years on the internet and otherwise. Largely libertarian initially, largely very open-minded in a big way, partly based on a premise that information transmission was expensive and it was noble to make it cheap. Unfortunately, that also got weaponized in the last couple of years. And, and we've seen some ramifications of that too, but generally driven off of what I think were a high-minded and positive set of ideals around how this should work. And because the landscape changes and 2020 is very different from 1991, those politics have to evolve as well. I do think blockchain technology, the public ledger stuff has caused a lot of new developers to be very mindful of the need for governance and the role that humans play in building these systems out. I just worry that it might have led to a sense of omniscience as well on the part of programmers. If you can't measure it in a smart contract, it's not worth measuring. Uh, or it's not worth factoring in as a variable to this business process. That is a very close-minded way of, of going about this and actually reverses about 50 years of progress in the business world around ESGs, double bottom line, all of the things that have actually, I think, indicated progress in the systems of capitalism towards uh, better social outcomes. Yeah. And I would say maybe like the nation state governments, one of their fears might be that if we have this decentralized DAOs for governments, for example, and something happens and the contract instructed someone to hand over all their money to somebody else for, let's say it was an error or something, is the code law or is the people's law, right? That becomes the conversation. I think we're having that conversation, but it's still not clear to yeah. everybody how it'll 
It'll turn Even that out. phrase "code is law" was a misinterpretation of Larry Lessig's book. It was his, was the title, but actually the picture Larry painted was one of four different directions: code, law, markets, and norms. Is, is what governs society now, a law being just one part of it. But but markets and norms still matter, right? If the norm says that when you decide to deploy a financial instrument you find on a, on a website for a cryptocurrency exchange, and that, and that financial instrument misbehaves, you might have some recourse based on the promises made about what that would do. Even if you could have read the code, you could have inspected it yourself. It's just like saying that car that you bought you could have opened the hood and seen that it had this manufacturing flaw that led to the engine exploding and you didn't. So it's all your fault. We have lemon laws for that kind of thing, right? I think that there are reasonable laws around if you're going to promote something as fit for purpose for a certain thing and take money for that, then you're liable in some way. And all of these, every DAO, and I think it's a mistake to you know, presume that these DAOs are suddenly untethered from human connection. These DAOs were written by humans. They were marketed by humans. They're deployed by humans. I've even seen <laughs> companies that call themselves DAO that has, I'm the CMO for such and such DAO. And it's like, that kind of tweaks the whole idea. There's accountability up and down the stack in this. And the more that people try to escape that accountability, the more that it leads to abuses and fraud in the system. So I would hope that as we attempt to use these technologies to improve the systems of the world, we do that with an eye towards improved auditability and improved accountability so that the markets remain fair and, and functioning. Agreed. Having been involved in so many successful projects, do you have any work productivity recommendations you can share with the audience? <laughs> do not take them from me. I, I, I really do not. I feel like I have no magic tricks to, to productivity and fight constantly against distraction, fight constantly against rabbit holing. I'll just say that in my defense, rabbit holing has sometimes led to dramatic career changes that have been for the positive. And I'm, I would stick up in favor of always having a couple of different things going on rather than being monomaniacally focused on just one thing. Because I think there's opportunities for cross-fertilization. There's new opportunities that emerge. I We are a very distraction-driven culture. I would just say, try not to doom scroll every night. I have stopped, with a little bit of an exception, stopped trying to read my Twitter feed for an hour as I'm falling asleep each night. And I always get much better sleep and always feel much better in the morning when I don't do that. So just try to, don't just be like a totally passive consumer of the news and, and watching the world go by, because that is just a recipe for psychic harm. I can't agree more. And I, I got to admit, I, I'm also, I've been affected by that as well. It's good advice. I have some personal questions, some like more philosophical questions I want to ask you as well. So I hope you enjoyed these. What do you believe in that most people would disagree with? These days, it does feel like most people are pretty skeptical and cynical about the role that technology can play in society. And, and actually, this is a place where I, I, I find some degree of inspiration in the, the public blockchain and, and cryptocurrency space and in other and in parts of the enterprise blockchain space, too, where there are people trying to use software to solve systemic problems. But out in whether it's the popular media or uh, a lot of the people who've been in Silicon Valley for a while or been in tech for a while, a lot have grown very cynical seeing, again, these original ideals, these motivations around access to information and the digitalization others lead to these very extreme negative outcomes. It's hard to be an optimist in information tech these days or hard to be an idealist when it comes to open source software and the way that it might lead to a better outcome. So I, if you say most, I'm going to probably stand out there with that. And I even think to the point of saying, you know, like these health pass apps for being able to reopen society. There are people who are opposed entirely to the idea 
of using vaccination status as a way to gain access to a concert or a restaurant, and certainly not a digital app like on, on one side of the spectrum. And then there's others who say, well, who cares about privacy? Who cares about confidentiality or, or public health, or, I'm sorry, your personal health information? Just digitize your white card as a PDF file and show it from your phone, and that should be good enough. And both these extremes are take very dark views of privacy, human nature, and the kind of world that we want to build. So that's where sometimes it can feel a little lonely out here with me and my little tribe trying to fight for what's right. Yeah, no, I think those are good points. And related to my next question, actually, and not to get too political on this one, but how do you think technology can be used to address some of the drug taboos in our society? And I'm talking. What do you mean by like, drug uh, drug taboos? I'm talking about. I just saw an example a couple of weeks ago. There was a CEO who was ousted from the company because he used LSD. It's like a two billion dollar company. Psychedelics, things like that. Things that have always been very portrayed as wrong in society where maybe these things can be a key to a new way of understanding our mental mm -hmm. states of mind or existence time in general i think these are important conversations we aren't having probably because we have a lot of other problems <laughs> to <laughs> deal with before then but i think eventually once we do get to a level where technology and society has evolved and I feel like I'm Elon Musk or something right now talking about the future. You're not smoking right now, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Well, then neither of us are Elon Musk, so we're already ahead. Right, because he smokes every day all the time. Every time it is a podcast. No. And the reason I bring it up, actually, is because I saw your hyper real. Yes. Website, and I thought that was go there. And the, so the hearkening back to the early nineties, I first got online. I, that was just after Nancy Reagan and just say no of the 1980s and the, the excesses of, of, you know, cocaine and that during that time and all this kind of just really dark negative view of psychedelics, drugs, of visionary plants, all that kind of stuff. And I, I being uh, at Berkeley, which is the home for, they like to say of both BSD, Unix and LSD, you certainly have a different viewpoint on these kinds of things. And one of the things I felt was that a lot of the harm from these drugs can, did come from misinformation about them, about incorrect ways to use them, about adul adulterants and, and stuff sold as one drug, but actually another. This was a big problem in the rave scene where drugs that actually have a pretty manageable degree of neurotoxicity toxicity or harm such as MDMA actually out there, the majority of which was sold as much of what was sold as MDMA was actually much more harmful the types of drugs. And, and so it seemed like information was the antidote to a lot of the harms from drugs. And, and so I started when starting this raver mailing list and website, a section of that on some of the information I could find out there about what these drugs actually were, what their real effects were, gleaned off of other sources on the internet and, and the like, but gradually there, that spun out into its own site called Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D.org, which continues to exist today. It's its own freestanding nonprofit. It provides unfiltered information about all sorts of visionary plants, psychedelic substances, everything from peer-reviewed papers uh, in journals and original research reports from Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland in the early days of LSD and other things, to individual trip reports and crowdsourced kind of information, but all of it cultivated and organized and with an eye towards creating reference quality information. And it ends up uh, having been a, a huge information source for law enforcement, not to go and try to track down people who report having taken this or that's illegal, but instead to better understand what are the drugs out there that are distractions and what are the ones that are actually true public health issues. And in fact, many of them have started to feed information in as a way to, to if this kind of experience is happening, do that, encounter this kind of bad thing, that sort of thing. So I believe strongly in that. I, I think it is a little still based in that idealistic viewpoint of information is power and better information is 
uh, as an unalloyed good. And it harkens back to that old days in the same way that the Internet Archive is a nod to that earlier idealism of the Internet. I think we are seeing in 2021, now there's, what, 25 states that have legalized medical marijuana, or probably more than that, quite a few states that have legalized it for recreational use, and quite a few other things now getting legalized, as well as now great scientific data coming out about the use of MDMA and mushrooms for, for clinical treatments and PTSD and, and those sorts of things. So I think we're entering a space where it turned out information is power. It turned out there is a lot that, that we actually can learn about these substances and the, and the safe way to use them. And I think technology, the, inf the internet and information technology has played a big role in that. Whether these technologies, uh, blockchain technology and others could play a role, I don't quite know. There are quite a few folks in the medical, well, in the marijuana industry using uh, blockchain technology for traceability in the on the cannabis supply chain and reportability. In fact, so I, I co-authored along with about 12, 13 other people, a report for the state of California on the use of blockchain technology by the state, potential uses for it. And one of those was in no surprise in supply chains and bringing better traceability and, and regulation to many of these supply chains. And a big one for that was cannabis, because there's tremendous issues with quality, with uh, the way that payments flow, the, with, uh, with safety. You really want the same kind of information and, and rigor in that information as you would get from the wine industry, as you get from other refined food products. And quite there are quite a few cannabis-related blockchain projects out there in production today. That's really encouraging to see. And so maybe that plays a role in helping make other types of substances like this more safely deployed as an industry. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And as a, like a follow-up question, are you planning to attend Burning Man this year? <laughs> <laughs> of course, those are connected. They don't have to be, you know. You they can go to, to Burning Man absolutely sober. It is a remarkable experience, absolutely sober. Uh, I can uh, take my word for it. Sadly, none of us can go to Burning Man this year because they have officially announced that they have postponed it till next year. So that'll make two years in a row that Burning Man is not uh, being conducted in the Black Rock Desert. Now, there are people who will go out there that week, anyways, and hopefully they'll remember that there are no porta potties or ice sails or, or other infrastructure out there. It's just them and the playa. I've been out there a couple of times during similar types of, hey, let's just random people show up in the middle of this big flat desert and see what we can do, what things we can blow up. That's fun. But I, yeah, sadly won't be doing Burning Man this year. All right. Yeah. I think they're also having virtual Burning Man too. Pretty much. Oh yeah. The, that was fun last year. For sure. So in your view, what would it take for Bitcoin to lose its number one place in total network value? In terms of USD, not being on like the Bitcoin development team, not myself owning a lot of Bitcoin, not being, and obviously we all could have, would have liked to turn back the clock. And I, I, you know, invested in it when it was still, when Satoshi released the first version of his code and you could have mined a whole bunch of coins. I also feel like my uh, track record at predicting the value for Bitcoin as rarely as I've tried to do it, but evidenced by never buying into it to be pretty poor. So I, I, I don't know that I have the key to understanding what it would take for it to lose its place. One reason I do Ethereum, one reason I do like some of the other coins that and the communities that have emerged around that is an appetite for innovation and an appetite for evolution that... I think the Bitcoin crowd, on the other hand, are pretty proud not to have. There's occasional evolutions in Bitcoin, SigWet or Taproot that's going around now, and that sort of thing. And, and I think they prize going slowly and surely. And I have respect for that. I like that. But Ethereum is a programmable platform. It's intended to be a place for all sorts of decentralized applications to be more generative. And it's I, I, metaphors are cheap, right? But if Ethereum is more like the view of, I, I think, the internet protocol developers who are like, what are some foundational pieces? we can build so that other people can build on top of us and do more. 
And that feels like a little bit less of a focus on the um, Bitcoin side. Where potentially other coins do rise up, Ethereum or, or maybe things like Filecoin. I did join the Filecoin Foundation as a board member recently, partly because I was really impressed by Juan Bennett. And I have been, been talking with him a bunch about how do we get more enterprise support or awareness of IPFS originally. This was like four or five years ago. And then progressively over other parts of the decentralized infrastructure that he and Protocol Labs are building out. So always been very impressed by it. And I believe there's a real potential for currencies like Filecoin that are tightly focused on specific use cases. And in Filecoin's case, it's for funding the pinning of storage to the IPFS network in a decentralized way as an alternative to S3. Really, I, I think those have the biggest potential to, to leapfrog out and um, reinvent how existing major major enterprise systems are used. Like I think Filecoin is more of a threat to S3 than Bitcoin is, right? A threat to PayPal or something like that. So we'll see where where a lot of this heads, but I I can't give a specific sense of when the flippening happens or the counter flippening as I think your question asked, but I, I, and I will just say, there's a lot for us to learn about what's going on. There's a lot of noise, a lot of outright fraud and a lot of structural concern that I have about things like Tether and the role that Tether could play in some of the, some of this falling apart. If things don't get fixed on that front, but, but I think there's a lot of good engineering work going on in the cryptocurrency community that the rest of the engineering world should be paying attention to. And just for the audience, I want to remind you guys, this is just for entertainment and informational purposes only. This is not, not for investment purposes at all. Not, not any kind of financial and, advice no, or I, anything like that. Yeah. Um, please, you know. See, this is exactly what I was talking about, like engineers getting excited about a technology and then inadvertently becoming promoters of it. Yeah. <laughs> Now I'll get a call from the SEC. Anyways, let's see here. What is a favorite book that you read that has really influenced you? Um, a long time ago, in, in uh, I read The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. And this was 1990 or something like that. But it's a very long book about the history of the Manhattan Project. And, and actually goes a fair bit into the history of you know, particle physics and Marie Curie and all of a bit of that history, but really into the, what, what's impressive about it is this tremendous sweep of when a society is faced with a huge challenge or with a huge opportunity, whether it's having to stop a world war or putting a man on the moon or implementing something big, something that no single company could do alone, no single person can do alone. At times, governments have come together. You know, we as a society have come together to, to do that. And it's an impressive story about, about how that happened there. And when you look at the fight against the pandemic and the way that contact tracing fell apart entirely, the way that there's vaccine hesitancy out there, that means we will never get to herd immunity in the United States or may never get there, where it seems like there's so much self-defeatist kinds of thinking and how we as a society can organize and solve big problems in front of us, whether it's the pandemic or it's homelessness or that kind of thing. It's, it's encouraging to know that in our past, we've found it in us to have the solidarity to be able to go and solve big technology problems as were also big societal problems. I wish I had some way to summon that up and apply that again, because that's something that we all need to figure out. Yeah. And especially at that time too, I'm sure they didn't have email. They didn't have a lot of the tools that we have now for communication. So it was way I would they had to park her. everybody on a remote base in in, Man in New Mexico and have them work from there and not talk to anybody about what they were doing in order to make that work. That might also be tough to do these days. People would be live tweeting their their, their research, but uh, you'd have to lock that down. No Wi-Fi. You'd have to turn off the Wi-Fi entirely. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine that. So I have a couple of audience questions for you that they shared. So one is, what is your digital audio workstation of choice? Because I think you have a DJ experience. 
course. I'm pretty uh, modest on that front. I don't really make uh, my own music, but I've DJed a couple of uh, times digitally in the lot during the pandemic. And I use Mix, M-I-X, which is a Linux-based client. It looks uh, a lot like kind of your standard DJ kind of consoles, but I like it because it's so information rich. And I pipe that the output of that through OBS and then send it on a stream onto Twitch. And I, and it all just works. And it I, I choose to be on Linux, partly for political and societal reasons, partly for out of a point of pride, I've been running on Linux or FreeBSD as my desktop since the late 90s. And I just, it's always gelled for me. And I'm always appreciative when there's a piece of software like Mix that is end user heavy, that is media heavy, that should be hard to build <laughs> and isn't exactly the kind of thing Linux was designed for. And yet it works and it works well. There's no audio glitches. There's, it, it's just really impressive software. That and OBS, the fact that both of those run as native Linux uh, systems is uh, a deep appreciation for. Yeah, no, I love OBS. I actually also use it for my, my podcast. And when I was looking for the right software, when I started the podcast, I had purchased two or three different softwares for it. None of them were as good as OBS, not even close. It was like surprising to me, but yeah. Yeah. Another question is related to governance, actually. So is it fair to have an open network where people can join? So I guess like a public or permissionless network where people can join with equal voting rights without any previous investment or effort into the project, meaning there are people who have been working on this project for maybe months or years that all of a sudden new people come in and they have the same level of voting rights. What would you say to that? So I think if your governance model is entirely based on voting, you're doing it wrong. Back to some of the earlier comments that most of the way that real governance systems work out there, the way humans arrive at a solution is rarely by the 5149 vote on something important. It's really through conversation and consensus building and coming up with something that works for the vast majority. And so an over-reliance on that is, is partly a mistake. The second is it's really hard to val objectively value technical contributions because you can have a technical contribution that is 10 lines of code that radically simplifies some feature or radically speeds something up, fixes a huge bug. It might even be a, a, a patch that does nothing but removes lines of code <laughs> and still has a tremendous positive effect. So technical contributions are really hard to value. Technical and the value of that over time is really hard because software has a decay function. You've heard the term bit rot. There, I think it's a real thing. I think you really can think of software assets as more like heads of lettuce than bars of gold. And so being able to weight somebody's vote on a topic by the number of pull requests they've had accepted or something like that would just be a mistake. Whether you take a decision A or decision B should really be based on the merits of those decisions and the ability for a set of core stakeholders to agree on that. Now, a better question is who defines a core stakeholder versus somebody who's just a kind of a participant. And there's ways to do that are more fair than others. There are some that are meritocracies where you start with a bootstrap set of developers or set of participants, and they vote in other participants into that network because they want the network effects that come from more people involved in the network. And you have some adjudication process to kick out people who are disruptive or causing spam or causing problems in some way. We've been doing this for millennia. We know how to build these kinds of governance networks, and there's never a bulletproof way of getting it right. But there are processes that we can learn from around, go back to not just Eleanor Ostrom that go back to our, the foundations of political theory in the ancient Greek. So this is not new terrain for all of us. And in open source software, just pulling us back from blockchain for a bit, in open source software, it's almost always the newbies who have a fresh set of eyes on something, who have a, a, a unique take on something, who have new ideas, who end up making uh, the most valuable contributions in their first year. You need that kind of fresh blood to come into a contributor community. So any good 
core maintainer, if you're lucky enough to be in that small set of insiders who accepts pull requests into a body of code, the part of your job is to mentor the next generation because eventually one of the other maintainers is going to want to retire or they change jobs or they have a kid or something else distracts them and you want more people in that project or you yourself might want to be able to walk away. There are very few open source projects that retain their leadership. One of them is Linux itself. Linus Torvalds is celebrating the 30th anniversary this year of the Linux kernel. So he, he deserves a ton of credit for being at the center of that project his entire life. I know it's a great source of pride for him, but also it's a job as well. And he had to take a break a few years ago too. I think are getting really stressful for him. But most mere mortals and most projects do best when there's a graceful transition of power over time amongst core participants. And so on open source projects, it works that way. I tend to think that for many systems of governance, focusing on a system that works rather than on the personalities that drive it is, is the better approach. Well said. Thanks for sharing that. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? <laughs> I got the vaccine. So somewhere it's floating around in my system. Um, <laughs> I just think it's fascinating that people think microchips work that way, you know, that they can be embedded. I'm, I'd actually love, I can't wait till we have medical nanobots who can course through our bloodstream, snipping out the fat cells, find, you know, and enhancing our white blood cells ability to fight infections. Like medical nanobots seem like a thing. And long before it's tiny little bits of machinery, they're going to be engineered counter viruses, counter it, or other types of what's the term. It's not fauna, but microfauna or something like that. coursing through our bloodstream engineered by us to solve certain problems. And will they be able to talk to the outside world? Maybe. I have to admit, I am also intrigued by the idea of, you know, what is, speaking of Elon Musk, a Neuralink is, uh, is his company. There's huge privacy and human agency issues involved with the idea of connecting your brainstem to an ethernet cable or a Wi-Fi network for that matter. So intrigued by that, but also there's certainly something tempting about the possibilities there. But so choice of location for microchip, either embedded throughout my bloodstream, doing good work or right at the, the um, top of my uh, spine. One of the two. Yeah. And the question's like kind of broad, kind of vague purpose, <laughs> but that was a good answer. Appreciate it. So yeah, I think this was a really fantastic conversation, Brian. I really just want to say thank you so much for you know hopping on the show here and talking to me. Uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it as well. Are there any other maybe key takeaways, additional you know pieces of information you want to share that I we really didn't talk about uh, for the audience? No, I've spent most of my life being focused on what now has been termed digital public goods, and I think the more that folks recognized and appreciated the value for infrastructure shared commonly developed infrastructure out there, whether it's the federal highway system in the United States, whether it's the internet, which grew, but grew as a very flat kind of thing with a fair bit of government funding, but with also a lot of companies working together on a common piece of technology to every piece of open source software that people use collaboratively built, built for a kind of a greater purpose. If you use these technologies, think about contributing back. Think about where they came from. Think about dedicating some of the resources you have to spend, whether you're a, a company or even as an individual, like in helping support where this stuff came from. I know it's hard. People think if they get it for free and they don't owe anybody anything. Thank you, Gmail, for making that the explicit, implicit understanding of free technology systems is that they just magically appear. But do think about where that technology comes from and considering creating, paying it forward or paying it back. Yeah, and the difference with Gmail is and open source software, OBS is not tracking what I'm doing and sending it to marketers, whereas Thanks. Google probably is. So good point. Again, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, this has been awesome. Look forward to talking to you again sometime. Yeah, me too. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital 
disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.